Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. I'm Amy. We didn't really discuss ahead of time how we were going to introduce me, did we? I'm the guest host. I'm Bex. Yeah. Today, we're welcoming Bex Goose, who is leaving me starstruck a little bit because I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. Oh my God, don't. She is one half of the Not Again podcast, which is one of my favorite shows. She is the potato lady of Potato Lady podcast reviews, and she is the author of young adult modern fantasy novel, Hellbound. So thank you so much for coming on, Bex. Thanks for having me. This podcast is in my wheelhouse, so happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I think you're also an English major. Yeah, I was an English teacher for a while there, too. Yeah. Um, So English major, AP English teacher, and then COVID hit and no more teacher. But I still enjoy literature and analysis. And you'll probably be much better at it than we are usually. I don't know. The thing is, and this is kind of funny because in AP Lit, like half of that lesson plan is poetry, but I'm pretty bad at poetry. Like I I just don't like it. So and I tell my student or told my students that like right up front, I was like, I hate this. We have to do it. I know you hate it too. (laughs) Like, let's just get through this together. We'll we'll suffer together. Um, So you're probably you're actually better at poetry analysis than I think I am because I just don't have the patience for it. That's honestly if you want to say something, just say it, you know? Why do you have to say it with, like, flowery language? Whereas I'm the queen of flowery language, including in my essays. It's rough. <laughs> oh, yes. I know. <laughs> so this week, we're returning to my personal homegirl, Christina Rossetti. She's my favorite poet, and we've covered her before on here. But this week, we're going to talk about a new-to-me and a new-to-Amy poem, which is The Goblin Market. And uh, Bex, I think you have more experience with this poem. So could you share a little bit about your background with it? Yeah, I, you had read it before? No, I've read it for the first time, like, this week. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, that's an experience. Read Reading Goblin Market for the first time is an experience. I didn't realize. Hi, this is Chantel from the future. We're about to get into a talk about this week's work, which is about fruit. Christina Rossetti swears it is about fruit. However, I need to give you a content warning that we are going to get into a light talk about sexual assault, and there is mention on a separate note of consensual incest. Again, this is a poem about fruit. Okay. Enjoy the show. Because of aforementioned not liking poetry, I would often be on Google asking Google, like, what are good poems to teach? And also because I was part of NIMSI, which is, for those who don't know, the National Math and Science Initiative, but also with English. But we're not giving you an E in the name, but like it's there. Oh, no. I think Bill Gates started it. It's to help like fund AP teachers and also encourage students to take AP classes. And so we would go to like, they're not even conferences. They're like intensive sessions um, while we were part of NIMSI. It's a three-year thing that your school like signs up for and it was just if you can imagine just a room full of AP English teachers it's just the nerdiest get together you will ever (laughs) encounter everybody just like going crazy over poetry or telling me I'm insane for like a heart of darkness and things like that but um, anytime someone's like oh I love teaching this poem I would just write it down (laughs) like oh yeah of course I know that poem too you're like looks at hand smudge writing (laughs) uh market of golems yeah gerblin yeah (laughs) that one by Christina Risotto yeah I love Risotto and so yeah because you got to say face in front of the other AP teachers you can't just be like oh I don't know that poem so I I heard about that one and honestly it was so long I was like oh I'm not gonna read this but it kept coming up as like you know when you google it when when other teachers talk about it they're like we like teaching this one it takes a long time to teach it and so I was like okay fine I'll read it and then I read it and read the fact that she claimed it was um not supposed to be sexual (laughs) 
I saw that. When in line seven, she's talking about unplucked cherries. There's no way. And so I thought it'd be hilarious to give it to my students and be like, here you go, interpret this. And my favorite part was when one of the boys in the class, very sweet kid, not a lot of boys took AP English. And so there's only a few in the class, but he just looks at me like halfway through the poem and basically just goes, why? Why are you making us read this? Like he felt so uncomfortable. I assume probably around the, the verse that just keeps talking about sucking juices off of like faces. Yeah. I assume that's where he just stopped and looked at me with like betrayal in his eyes. <laughs> I was like, hey, hey, she said it wasn't sexual. And I just like, I got such glee out of just torturing them, which I think you're not supposed to do as a teacher. But yeah, so that was our interpretation of it and, and my experience with it. And going back to it for today's session, when I reread it, like I had forgotten how bad it was i even knew and it still surprised me some of the lines that i read so so that's my experience yeah it's a lot it is it absolutely it's a lot i'm really excited to hear your reading of it but we usually give a summary because not everyone likes to read poems or novels so if you haven't read it it's one i would recommend but like don't feel bad if you haven't because i literally just did (laughs) if you read it like go in with the warning that you're gonna be a little bit like appalled i guess but yeah i'd recommend it it's not tame. Um, So basically what happens is there's two sisters, Lizzie and Laura, and they hear goblins peddling their fruit every day. Lizzie warns Laura that they should be wary of the fruit, but Laura is too tempted. She ends up buying some of the fruit with a lock of her golden hair, because gold is currency, definitely. And she eats with the goblin men. They are all men. This is very important, I think. And afterwards, she's plagued by like this insatiable hunger and long for more fruit, but she can no longer see or hear the goblins. So Lizzie sees her kind of wasting away and wanting to help. She goes to buy fruit to bring back to Laura, but the goblins do not like that. They don't like the idea of her taking fruit away. They're like, it's going to spoil. Well, yeah, because she's just trying to pay for it with like a silver dollar. And they're like, "Mm, we don't care for your your money just eat the fruit they're pretty insistent that she eats it with them that's the thing they're like you got to eat this with us yeah she doesn't and they kind of try to like push fruit into her mouth and she seals her mouth shut while they're doing this and it's very creepy and then when she comes home she's covered in the fruit juice and i guess laura kind of laps it off of her and she's cured and she recovers and they both grow up to have families Mm -hmm. like you should when you're a woman of course (laughs) It's important. The the lesson of the story is make sure to get married and have babies. And yeah, and I would issue a trigger warning because we're going to have to talk about sexual assault because of that one section that you were talking about. Yes, thank you. There is a content warning for sexual assaults. In this poem that the poet claims is not sexual in any way, shape or form, which is hilarious to me. So what is your hot take on this poem? My hot take on this poem is she's either a liar or so hideously repressed that it is psychologically dangerous. Either she said, oh yeah, this poem isn't about sex, wink. Or she was like, I can't understand why you would think this is sexual. Totally stone-faced, not getting it. And I wish I could dig her up and reanimate her just to ask. Calls Dr. Frankenstein. Yes, right. Just can I have some of that weird potion thing that you did? So, you know, I read it and I think that what I read about it was because, you know, I shouldn't reveal English teacher secrets, but like, I just Google analysis of stuff when I'm not sure. Yeah. It's better to do that than to be wrong. To be like, hey, hey, 
these students, this means this, this, and this. And then to look up and be like, oh, no, it doesn't. Like, then, you know, your credibility is gone. So I did Google to, like, learn more about this poem. And she said it wasn't supposed to be sexual. And I believe that she wanted it to be essentially like a grim fairy tale sort of fable as, like, a lesson of morality for children. And it gets into that, like, the only hint of that I see is that she keeps talking about Lizzie and Laura as having, like, dimpled cheeks and fingers, which tends to be the way you describe Mm -hmm. small children. So I think she meant for them to be, like, five at most. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. So, like, again, like, if she meant that, then I think that she genuinely thought this was, like, Hansel and Gretel style. I mean, Hansel and Gretel also had that kind of, like, giving into temptation and gorging yourself in gluttony and being punished for that. But somehow, they managed to not make that one too sexual. (laughs) But, you know, so, like, I think she meant for them to be children, but as especially as modern readers, we bring an age to them that possibly wasn't intended by the author, because I see them as teenage girls. Um, And they're referred to as maidens as well. Mm -hmm. So that's like, are they maidens, you know, of marrying age? Or are they five-year-olds? Come on, Christina. Like, clear about that. So depending on how you interpret it, it's still creepy regardless. I also feel like if you have a very dangerous daily market of goblins, you you should move to to somewhere that doesn't have (laughs) goblins just outside your door. I feel like, where are their parents? Yeah, well, that's the thing. They don't seem like they have parents. So like, are they like, you know, five years old, parentless and just like roughing it? Or are they like, you know, 16, maybe close to like being too old to marry at that point kind of thing? Yeah. It's weird. I don't like it. I mean, I did like it. I enjoyed reading it. The imagery is kind of fun, but I don't, there's, there lacks context. And they also talk about their other friend who like was apparently about their age and didn't get married. She was supposed to be a bride, but she did the goblin thing and then the way other way because reasons. So like if they're five, then that's also super creepy. So let's hope that they're about teenagers. Yeah, I mean, like that's how that's how my interpretation goes is that they're teenagers, especially if her friend was supposed to get married. I was picturing like 16, 17 when I was reading this, just as soon as they were like wandering about during the day. But I guess in Victorian times, anyone would wander about during the day because there weren't like non-goblin kidnappers. Yeah, I mean, like there's a lot of just like maidens shouldn't wander at night kind of things. And it's like, geez. Yeah, no, Jeannie, I put a comment for this. Like I'm getting ahead of us obviously because this is the not again way of doing it it's just like jump to the end then go back to the beginning <laughs> that's fine and talk about the middle of it so in one stanza it says she thought of genie in her grave who should have been a bride and i just commented lose your virginity before marriage and die yeah like that's the seems to be she died from being not a virgin <laughs> yeah which seems to be the case like they just keep implying that it's physically going to hurt you if you partake yeah and christina did volunteer at like a institution for fallen women fantastic which fill in the blanks and how like they wither the waist because you know they were weren't good enough anymore y'all can't see my air quotes but they're there you can hear them in your voice so i mean there's definitely influences of her own experiences in there um which is kind of sad for those women i think yeah it's not completely untrue unfortunately because in victorian times basically if you were a woman there wasn't a good way for you to earn a living so you could only earn a decent living by marrying a husband and if you had sexual relationships before marriage and you were a fallen woman and you were unmarriageable. So you couldn't make money. You couldn't buy shelter that was good. You couldn't like buy food except with locks of your hair, I guess. Yeah, not very good at history, but it turns out that women didn't always have it so good as we do now. Like now that feminism doesn't need to happen anymore because the sexes are perfectly equal and everything's fine. Of course. Yeah, it's it's so cool how we just, we won. Now everything's fine, so. It's actually gone the other way now, in my opinion. Like women have it too Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, we need to be knocked down a peg. We've had it too good for too long. 
long. But yeah, no, it was bad back then. And so again, I wonder, is, is like, are young female children supposed to read this and be like, oh, wow, like, I better, you know, walk the line or I'm gonna end up withering away and dying before I even get married. Like, it definitely has warning in it. Like, she wanted it to be a cautionary tale. It's just that the nature of it is not like it reads very differently from perhaps what she intended so and yeah. yeah just considering also like her other poems like uh, the apple orchard that one's clearly about virginity and the loss of it and that kind of stuff so like knowing her like modus operandi so so to speak girl you're not fooling anyone here <laughs> she has this thing with fruit and when I was reading it, like, yeah, absolutely. The fruit was like a straight allegory for sex for me. And it's true. I've never heard fruit described more sexually. And I've seen like the fall of the eggplant and the peach and the cherry. So that's really saying something. And if you haven't read it, I'm going to read like a little bit from the poem just so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. My reading of it out loud is going to be inspired by the Wittershins Stories podcast because that's who I was listening to the first time. So when Lizzie eats the fruit, here's the passage. It's like, she clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, then sucked their fruit globes fair or red. Sweeter than honey from the rock, stronger than man-rejoicing wine, clearer than water flowed that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more. Fruits which that unknown orchard bore, she sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away, but gathered up one kernel stone, and knew not was it night or day, as she turned home alone. So like, it's a lot. Your listeners right now are just feeling a little bit uncomfortable, probably. They're like, I just really didn't want to hear this. Like we've been warning them. And yet I think that there's going to be some people out there who are like, nope, I still wasn't prepared. And that's what this poem does to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The triple repetition of sucked, I think, just followed by her sucking until her lips are sore. <laughs> yeah. I put down that Lizzie and Laura were goofus and gallant, basically. Like, I, I feel like I, I only like 90s kids get highlights reference, but... <laughs> Just like there's the one like Goofus goes to the goblin market and sucks on their fruit. Gallant knows not to do that and goes straight home. Ah. You know, like poor poor Laura. She's just trying some fruit globes. Yeah. Oh, I said when Lizzie eats the fruit. You're right. It's oh, Laura. I get them confused constantly. It's ridiculous. I don't know why I'm going to be super like prejudiced here, but like Lizzie sounds like the name of the ne'er-do-well. Mm. While Laura sounds like the goody two-shoes to me. I totally agree. I have connotations with names. Isn't that funny? Lizzie's like a harder name. Yeah, like, I think because in literature, we have Elizabeth Bennet who goes by Lizzie. So she's kind of like always going against the grain. And then even like, as far as like Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. that name is associated with like women who defy what women are supposed to do. Um, so I get them confused a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you have a nickname, that means you're not going with the name that God gave you. So that's, that's a whole other thing. Yes. I also like the part at the end where she like, is stumbling home and she doesn't know if it's night or day. I think it's night and she's like disoriented. And I, I'm reading that as like a walk of shame type mm -hmm. thing. Not that there's any shame, no. but yes. I mean, the, obviously the poet, so I, I, I noted somewhere that the narrator does not attempt to hide their disdain and, and their opinions about what little girls should and shouldn't do at any point. But I had a, a note somewhere where it really became apparent because it was like, as maidens should do, you know, like, yeah. but it's towards the end. And uh, it just says they, uh, I don't know, this is a run on sentence. I don't want to do the whole stanza. Just early in the morning when the first cock crowed his warning, neat like bees as sweet and busy, Laura rose with Lizzie, dot, dot, dot to imply I'm skipping about six lines. 
talked as modest maidens should, yeah. right? Like the narrator is just clearly saying like, this is how things are supposed to happen. There's no attempt at like subterfuge or like be- or subtlety in this at all. Yeah. It's just like, are you paying attention? I have a lesson for you. It's right here. Where's your, I found a lesson sound effect. <laughs> I found a lesson. I'll, I'll loan it to you. I found a lesson. <laughs> you know, don't lose your virginity ever, actually. <laughs> just stay a virgin or it, you'll die. Sex kills you. Just don't. Sex and masturbation. You'll go blind and you'll die. Yeah, hundreds of years later, you know, mean girls got it right. You know, don't have sex. You'll get pregnant and die. You know, it's just, that's the same message. So true. There's another one later, which doesn't have the sucking, but still has, I think it's like a pretty sexual description of just the fruit on its own. Mm -hmm. When the goblins are trying to tempt Lizzie, got it right that time, where they're like, look at our apples, russet and done. Bob at our cherries, bite at our peaches. Mm -hmm. Citrons and dates, grapes for the asking. Pears red with basking out in the sun, plums on their twigs, pluck them and suck them, pomegranates, figs. Okay, there is sucking. Yeah, she just really likes sucking, honestly. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't, I guess. I think, you know what? I think she just really wants to, wait, can you, do you curse on your guys' podcast? Yes. Oh, because I was going to say, like, she just really wants to fuck. I feel like she just really wants to have sex, feels guilty about that, because that's what women were made to feel for wanting sex. And honestly, men too, but like to a lesser extent. Oh, yeah. And just wrote this poem as like almost like a defense mechanism, like reaction formation. Like, no, I don't want to have sex. It's terrible. What are you talking about? Look at how horrible it is. But yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Line seven, plump, unpecked cherries. Yeah. And later there's talk of flowers being plucked. Yeah. I don't care what year it is. Like if it's now or hundreds of years ago, there are euphemisms that are just, you can't interpret them any other way. And we know that before she has used plucking blossoms as an explicitly sexual metaphor like in an apple gathering she's like i plucked pink blossoms from mine apple tree and that's how she <laughs> falls and she doesn't have an apple and she's unmarriageable now so she definitely uses like plucking the blossoms as a fallen woman metaphor that's what i'm saying she has to have been aware of this i don't know it seems hard to accept that she genuinely and naively did not know what she was writing um i give her more credit than that honestly i think she knew exactly what she was doing so do i because because at one point she talks about like how um, so Laura comes back and like she's carrying this seed right but the, when she tries to plant it it doesn't grow and we all know that seed is another word for semen and it has, it's always been so like she comes back with it nothing grows she's feeling ill and like their other friend died from this died from semen yeah it's a bit like I'm almost wondering if their other friend didn't actually have a seed that did grow and then died in childbirth possible mm. uh-huh. yeah I mean pregnancy can genuinely be dangerous and life-threatening right like yeah 100% scariest part it's just that the morality police would just simply use that as a like I can't say a megaphone those didn't exist but whatever the you know Victorian version of a megaphone was for just like look she died as a punishment because she you know had premarital sex or whatever it is yeah and oh ignore all those married women who also died from childbirth they um they masturbated fuck them like we (laughs) I don't know yeah just whatever works for their (laughs) proselytizing but like I think that there's a lot of semen imagery in this like pearl and dewdrop pearly whatever and juices and all that stuff i mean it's kind of hard to avoid (laughs) i want to i want to avoid it (laughs) desperately want to god we would love to (laughs) like a lot of this poem is like okay please stop okay yep i get it oh you're still going okay (laughs) so i listened to it i have like chronic pain so i was taking my pain meds for my chronic pain and i listened to it when i was a little bit too high on those meds 
and kind of like in between that like awake and asleep and i just kept getting jostled out of like my listening of it because i was like whoa is this saying what i think it's saying so like you can't avoid any of those like uncomfortable imagery she's creating because it's just it's everywhere like you think you're okay and you're like okay we've passed it and it comes back like a wave yeah like good for her oh and then there's the white imagery like uh i have laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush embedded swan like a lily from the back like a moonlit poplar branch like a vessel at the launch when it's last restraint is gone so we have three like white purity imagery right we got swan we got lily we got moonlit branch and then a vessel at the launch is on its maiden voyage and her hair is gold so we have essentially four metaphors for purity in one quick stanza yeah and later i think they're referred to as as, as pure again the one thing i i was a little bit baffled by is like you know you can't uh, particularly put that cat back in the bag once it's out um and so it's like when lizzie comes home and lets her sister suck the fruit juices from her face as you do with sisters um <laughs> it kind of like cures her and it's like okay so like I, I see it as kind of like a born again thing where it's like well i'm back on the righteous path and so but it's just like you can't really undo that particular you know but sure as long as you believe right accept it into your heart oh yeah it's uh they're like two flakes of new fallen snow two wands of ivory she really likes the white imagery she does so look up here they are how are we feeling about their sister relationship mm, not great it's very victorian mm. in the sense of like you know how like you read old books and they're like weirdly close with their siblings in a way that i don't know i'm an only child i don't get how this works no it's weird i have two siblings it's weird yeah they're like overly close with their siblings in like almost like a desperate way yeah. and i think a lot of the jane austen novels also have that kind of like weirdly close relationship with sisters it's not as gross as this one <laughs> but it is also like kind of over the top of this camaraderie between siblings. I actually considered, I was like, are they actually sisters here? <laughs> yeah, I think if they were anything other than sisters, I would have to queer read it because Christina Rossetti has turned down three marriage proposals and I would have to be like, okay, maybe she was like gay and that's why she was turning down all these men. But since they're sisters, you can't. Yeah. I think it's just that Victorian like companions thing where yes. straight women would be like, oh, those two women living together and who have a super close relationship they just like basically form their own nunnery and they're just like super pious which I think is a brilliant rebrand <laughs> by queer women. They're described as looking very similar. I put sisters in air quotes at any other time but because they both have the golden locks yeah. and are literally described as essentially two peas in a pod and they're given fruit imagery for themselves I think like in the same yeah. stanza. Two blossoms on one step. Blossoms by the yeah. way. My goodness I didn't even catch that one. <laughs> There's so much virginity and semen imagery. I couldn't highlight it all because I would have highlighted the whole book. <laughs> but they definitely are sisters. I mean I'm person who and I'm not alone in this because my best friend also felt skeeved out by this in Frozen 2 a movie I hate there's like a scene where Anna is stroking Elsa's nose with her pinky and they're snuggling together in bed and I'm just like stop like the fan fictions are already doing this why are you encouraging them (laughs) it was so awful I mean at least in Avengers Age of Ultron like the Olsen not twin Wanda and Pietro there we go they were acting based on the one version of the Marvel Universe where the twins were incestuously in a relationship a la Game of Thrones. Like, they had that in their own, like, mental backstory that they were a little too close. Yeah. You know, and so at least that was forgivable, but with Frozen 2, it's just like, what are you doing? Like, do you think this is normal? It just gets really uncomfortably weird. And I think what she wanted was just kind of the dedication of one sister to save the other. Mm. And that comes through, strangely, beneath all the yuck is, like, just Lizzie's desperation to help 
if Laura is there. And and I mean, again, this is where that content warning comes in. Like she goes through what I have to say is at least attempted sexual assault with these goblins. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It seems that she was successful at like fighting off their advances in the end, but they are attempting it. And I won't read the stanza because I don't want to, but there, there were words of force and violence. And honestly, I think they just beat her up. <laughs> they beat her. Yeah. And she says she has bruises after. So like, yeah. objectively, they did. And so it's, it's, yeah. it's painted in a kind of like valiant, almost like way of just like, I'm going to save my sister no matter the cost. And that comes through, but it's just the way that it is presented. Just the ick factor is pretty intense. Yeah, I think in our era, we've lost like this ability to be platonically intimate with people. And I think maybe like we need to find some sort of middle ground because cuddling with your friends is just not a thing anymore where I think it was before. But this is a lot like here's part of the passage when Laura comes back after like getting fruit juice all over her. Lizzie. Lizzie. Yep. Lizzie comes back. Hey, if you're listening and your name is Laura, just know that your name alone makes me think that you're like a really good person. <laughs> I yeah. don't even need to know you. <laughs> if your name is Laura, I'm like, oh, they probably have a really steady job and are very responsive. <laughs> I don't know why. Anyway, yeah, when Lizzie comes back with the fruit juices. Yeah, when Lizzie comes back, she cried, Laura, up the garden, did you miss me? Come and kiss me. Never mind my bruises. Hug me, kiss me, suck my juices. Squeeze from goblin fruits for you, goblin pulp and goblin dew. Eat me, drink me, love me. Laura, make much of me. For your sake, I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchant men. Some of those words did not need to be there is what I'm saying. We could have skipped like from come and kiss me to like, I have saved you. I did all this for you. That would have been enough. Yeah. I think as an AP teacher, one of the more difficult things to teach was how to talk about the literary devices that everyone uses like because they have to. So that'd be tone, word choice, and imagery. You cannot write a poem or story without using those things because if you don't use word choice, you're not writing. And even robots have tone. They have robotic tone. Yeah. And image, again, like, why are you writing it if you're not trying to get someone to imagine something? And with this one, I think this poem could be used as a really good way of teaching how to talk about diction, which is the fancy word for mm-hmm. word choice that I tried to get my students to use. Because she chose to write that. She sure did. Yeah. Like, she started writing these lines and she's like, nope, needs more. Don't need to stop here. I think I need two, three, four more lines. Maybe some more sucking juices the decision had to be there why why christina why did you do this to me yeah it's not like she was in a trance while she was writing this you know well or maybe we don't know yeah that's true i mean the victorians opium they didn't have a lot of ways to entertain themselves true no i was listening to a few other podcasts in preparation for today and i heard someone on the saver podcast read this as like a jesus allegory like the eat me drink me love me thing Mm -hmm. where she had like given her body to restore Laura from sin. Mm-hmm. And I can see that. And apparently Christina also denied that this had a religious allegory and you can't deny <sighs> this. She should have been a politician. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, like, look at just the fact that there is temptation with fruit yeah. and then the consumption of fruit leading to sin. The forbidden fruit? Literally the forbidden fruit. I think, didn't she call it that at some point? Yeah. yeah. Like, what are you doing, Christina? The Bible did it first. Paradise Lost did it first. <laughs> yeah. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden must your like like mine be hidden your young life like mine be wasted undone in mine undoing it's very adam and eve uh, but she said fruit forbidden instead of forbidden fruit and there's a <laughs> word for that when you switch the adjective with the noun but i can't remember what it is but yeah so she didn't even know what she was doing she said fruit forbidden that's not forbidden fruit that's totally different <laughs> just a mistake whatever we're reading into it she didn't intend it the curtains were just blue 
It's fine. We can just move on. No need to read too much into it. Yeah. I mean, poetry, who reads into that anyway? Like, it's not meant for that. Exactly. So I did note down the religious imagery and the temptation. And even though, like, my students and I talked about this, much to their chagrin, there are, amongst the commonly used sexual fruits, cherries and peaches, for an example, just, like, tons of other fruits mentioned. And so it's like, did she mention the other fruits as a way of, like, throwing off the reader? Like, no, see, I'm not just talking about plucked (laughs) cherries and ripe peaches. I'm also talking about melons. Wait, no, not melons. Um, shoot. (laughs) Kumquat? No, wait. (laughs) It's just like, well, I'll I'll throw in as many as I can. There was a line where it was like she dreamed of melons and I was like, I'll bet you did. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm 13, (laughs) I guess. Especially when you keep talking about the juices and sucking. Like all of that fruit becomes sexual immediately. You cannot avoid that. Yeah. Like just bite the fruit. You don't need to suck on it. Bite it. Just eat it like a normal person. Chew, swallow. Don't even swallow. Just nope. Don't spit either. Just keep it in your mouth forever. (laughs) Um, Nothing sexual there. I mean, like how much can we talk about semen? We can find out. But I also, I think all sexual fluids were encompassed in this poem. Like there were some times where it felt distinctly feminine. It makes sense that there's the mixed gender fruit metaphors because if Lizzie's not tempted and Laura's tempted, maybe they were just misunderstanding the goblin's cry of come by, come Mm -hmm. by. Only the buys will come. Okay. I'm going to see myself out now. Yeah. And that's the podcast. We need a moment of silence. <laughs> wow. Yeah. When you were saying that, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because like B-Y-E, you know, come by as opposed to come purchase. But then I was like, oh, there's another. Yeah, there's a lot of homophones there. Uh, Yeah. I don't know if we can move on from that. <laughs> and throughout all this, I'm just really impressed by her ability to keep up that rhyme scheme. <laughs> like, yeah. Even though it's like really awkward to read, I'm just like, you go, girl. Like, you're not giving up on these rhymes. They just keep coming. It slaps. Like the goblins do. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. No. Thanks. No. I'm sorry. Don't do this. I'm, I'm leaving. I can't Goodbye. do this. See, it's all repressed, too. I'm repressed because I have to do my podcast PG. So it all just comes out in other podcasts. I mean, go for it. Like, this is the one to yeah. do it. This um, is a safe space. You mentioned the rhyme scheme. Uh, apparently this was not like critically well received because people were like oh this meter's like too out there because they couldn't handle the bars but yeah like they didn't like really and right now that's what we love about it who's criticizing poetry at this time like just go get a hobby what are you doing (laughs) the critics didn't receive this poem well you go write a poem then it's hard yeah i would not have received criticism well it was also illustrated by her brother which one dante no yeah so that probably didn't help did all the goblins look like Christina and then also Lizzie and Laura both look like Christina? Actually, there are some literary critics who say that the goblins are anti-Semitic. Fantastic. That's a common one. Big yikes. Big yikes. Dante Gabriel Rossetti's illustrations. His name was Dante Gabriel? That can't be real. Yep. I already named my kids. I'm gonna go unname one of them and rename him Dante Gabriel. (laughs) And her other brother was so normal. He was like George Michael or something. Which, I mean, now is kind of fun because of the singer i mean he was a good artist yeah but he really liked to paint his sister into everything yeah so maybe these two are the reason that she has the wrong idea about how siblings act together not to accuse the dead of oh 100 percent. do you know what that's a good point yeah 100 percent. yeah i think we've said all we can say about the poem so we can get a little bit into the background about what this is so christina rossetti we've mentioned before was very religious she's turned down two proposals and broke up an engagement specifically because those guys were a different branch of Christianity than her, which makes a huge difference, apparently. She was against young women and girls being exploited through sex work, and she volunteered with fallen women. And we know that her other poem, An Apple 
gathering was warning women off of losing their virtue and that was a big part of like her life and her beliefs and this is kind of the cool aunt warning poem again just like the same but if you're doing like a literal reading the origin and folklore I think comes from like the you don't eat food in the fairy realm Mm. Yeah. Because if you eat fairy food in the fairy realm, you can never leave. It's like Hotel California. Mm -hmm. Such a lovely face. Such a lovely place. I mean, that's a common theme in not just like fairy stories, but mythology. I mean, look at Hades and Persephone. You eat the food of us and then spirit it away as well. When she's eating their food, she's able to stay with them. So that's a common thread through a lot of different types of stories. Food is important. And the symbolism of temptation is very embedded in that story that has been seen throughout the ages, I think. Because if if you're being tempted by food, it's like not that different if you're being tempted by other things. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things that we read in my class alongside literature and poetry was How to Read Literature Like a Professor mm. is the book. I think it's Thomas Foster. And each chapter is essentially a different lens through which to look at literature. And it's really like good for laymen, for lay people. And my students liked it and it helped them to understand interpretation. And one of the chapters is just dedicated to food. And it, it, like you don't really think about it, but like, why would you go through the effort to put a scene of food consumption in a story when it's just kind of like by rote, you know, people are doing that, you know, it'd be like if Odysseus was like, hold on, guys, I got to go to the bath. Yeah. No one would do that. You just kind of assume that stuff happens off screen. So it happens in movies, too. Yeah. So why in The Incredibles did they have a family dinner that went to hell and back? It's because food is never really the issue. It's what's happening around the food. The food is so symbolic of yeah. do you trust people enough to eat with them? Can you eat well with them? Are you stiff? Does it turn into chaos? Or in this case, does it turn into sex? Yeah. Especially at times when they were so repressed that they couldn't even talk about sex or the church would tell them that they were evil and going to hell. They had to find a way to talk about it without talking about it. And so a lot of texts use food as that allegory. They're like, oh, we can't really explicitly say they have a sexual relationship. But like, if they're like sucking on chicken bones a certain way and licking their lips, you know, we got that. So I would recommend that book to everyone. It's super interesting. There's definitely like the relationships around the eating. Like in this one, she's with the goblins when they're eating. And that's very important. Like they're all indulging together. And then if you're Christina Rossetti and you are looking at it from like a Christian lens, there's also gluttony and like gluttony is a sin. So how much are you indulging? How much are you eating? Are you like Sir Gawain and the Knights of the Round Table that are eating a bunch of stuff for like 14 days straight so you can't move. Mm -hmm. She definitely indulged some of her temptations and her impulses. I mean like and then to have somebody who is so deeply religious say oh don't take a religious interpretation to my poem it's like "Mm, hilarious. Can you really separate it at this point though? Like if religion has become so much a part of your life that it's part of your personality your beliefs your actions it's gonna come out in your writing too. It just is. Yeah. Even people who aren't particularly religious just end up you know creating christ figures or whatever it may be so if you're that religious there's no way to avoid it and there's a lot of layers to it yeah it's like trying to separate yourself from any value system like you can't separate yourself from your intrinsic biases and motivations Mm -hmm. when you're writing something you would write i guess you would write like a landscape description because you can't write about people if you're separating values yeah but just as long as you don't include anything with like the clouds or the sky because that could be heaven so Mm, true that's a good point or like anything with a fruit tree because that could be sex it is a limiting thing and make sure it's not during night because then that has to do with hell and like the darkness and bad times oh yeah at the very least hades great point so now that we've looked at a poem about people indulging
indulging their impulses, we have another poem from Christina Rossetti about someone saying no. And this one I think is uh, equally hilarious to read for a different reason. And that poem is called No Thank You John. I like that one a lot. It's a good time. I can read through the whole thing because it's pretty short. Mm -hmm. Might as well. I never said I loved you, John. Why will you tease me day by day and wax a weariness to think upon with always do and pray? You know I never loved you, John. No fault of mine made me your toast. Why will you haunt me with a face as wan as shows an hour-old ghost? I dare say Meg or Maul would take pity upon you if you'd ask. And pray don't remain single for my sake, who can't perform that task. I have no heart? Perhaps I have not. But then you're mad to take offense. That I don't give you what I have not got. Use your common sense. Let bygones be bygones. Don't call me false, who owed not to be true. I'd rather answer no to 50 Johns than answer yes to you. Let's mar our pleasant days no more. Songbirds of passage, days of youth. Catch at today, forget the days before. I'll wink at your untruth. Let us strike hands as hearty friends, no more, no less. And friendship's good. Only don't keep in view ulterior ends and points not understood. In open treaty, rise above, quibbles and shuffling off and on. Here's friendship for you if you like. But love? No thank you, John. So that's what she uh, gave to one of those fiancés, right? To break up with him? <laughs> the ultimate Dear John letters. She's, she's saucy in this one. I like it. She is. One of them actually was named John. His name was John Brett, the third guy that she turned down. Everyone was named John back then, right? I think. True. Yeah. I think, okay, so like three things that I want to bring up. One, John is a word for guys who sleep with sex workers. True. So let's keep that in mind. Yep. Mall may come from Mall Flanders, who is a novel about a fallen woman who is a sex worker so you know meg or maul i don't know who meg here is but maul could be maul flanders so like maul might take pity on you if you ask but i'm not gonna perform that task do you know what i think you're onto something i'm always onto something chantelle come on that's good i didn't know that i think there's something here of like john's probably like trying to like play our narrator and she's like no goodbye no thanks i'm not gonna fall because of you you're not giving me anything that's worth it like she's literally use your common sense i'm not giving up my life for you and i love that she's like taking back her agency because women were basically just expected to oh he's such a nice guy say yes and that continued into i would say the early 2000s yeah which is way too long but she's like i'm gonna do what i want to do and I want to not marry this weird dude that I don't like. Yeah, it's interesting that it's kind of a dialogue as well. Like John appears to be standing there listening to this and she's like, what? Oh, I'm heartless. You know, it's just like, okay, he's right there. Yeah. I was trying to like Google it. I hate that Lit Charts is like, you have to pay us for this analysis. It's like, no, I don't want to. Um, I was hoping to see, because the only literary Meg that comes to mind, speaking of Greek mythology, is Megara. I was thinking that too. And I don't think that she was like, she was driven insane and eventually killed, but like she was just married to Hercules, I think, so... So it must be something else. She just wanted the alliteration. <laughs> I don't know the original myth, but I know the Hercules movie by Disney, which we all know is very historically so accurate. accurate. Zeus was super monogamous. Yeah, ancient Greeks were super redheaded and blue-eyed, for sure. Yeah. In that, she like falls in love with a guy and he leaves with someone else. So maybe she had a relationship before marriage. Maybe. There could be something to that. 
But yeah, step down, Michael Bublé, because Christina Rossetti invented Let's Just Be Friends. (laughs) (laughs) What a burn to be like, hey, maybe you should go buy sex because I'm not giving it to you. Especially for someone who doesn't believe in sex work. Yeah, well, I mean, like, she should be kinder to sex workers because sex work is work. Let's be fair. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they were that progressive back then. Um, So I'll forgive her for that, I guess. I mean, this poem could be retitled No Means No. Yes. And that's good. Mm -hmm. So like there is, whether purposeful or not, some feminist bent to this. Just like, I'm empowered to say no. I have my own agency in this and all of that stuff. Yeah, I like how she was like, I'd rather say no to 50 men who could bring me like, you know, a house, a livelihood, than to even say yes to you. Like I would say (laughs) no to the doctor, the lawyer, you know, the rich TikToker, then say yes to you. Call the old timey ambulance because he needs to go to the old timey bird ward, (laughs) which I think might have just been like a sanatorium, but whatever. (laughs) Or the grave. Yes. Just take him straight to the graveyard, wait for him to die. Like, you're not, you're not surviving this burn. Sorry, buddy. Yep. Rub some dirt in it. It's fine. Victorian doctors were so good. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so great. Yeah, they really understood the humors and all that. Yeah. And the wandering womb. Exactly. So that was fun. We usually do a rating scale at the end of our show. And I think this one lends itself to many possible ratings. But on a scale of a juicy peach <laughs> to an eternal curse... How would you rate the goblin market? This is one of the toughest questions of rating a poem I think I'll ever encounter because (laughs) it distinctly makes you uncomfortable to read it. And yet, if that is the intention of the author, which I believe that it is, not for the reasons that, you know, we think, but like she did want this to be a cautionary tale, then she has succeeded. And on top of that, I find this kind of like morbidly fascinating to read. And like I said, I like that she keeps up the rhyme to kind of maintain that facade of like, this is just a fairy tale for children. And so I think I have to rate it in Juicy Peach. At the very least, you're not going to be bored while reading this poem. Like, there's a lot of poems where your eyes will glaze over before you reach stanza two. And not this one. This one will keep you going. Yeah. Yeah. I would rate it a mandarin orange that's kind of off season. Okay. So, like, you know when you want to, like, go eat an orange and you think it's going to be, like, super juicy and you're really excited and then you crack open the peel and it's like, psh, um, with the aroma of, of the orange. But then you go into it and it's kind of dry, mm-hmm. you know, because it kind of makes you uncomfortable. You're like, ah, oh, I'm still going to eat the orange. But you're, like, kind of a bit disappointed because it kind of made you feel icky that it wasn't as satisfying as you wanted it to be. Yeah, I've been there. That's how I would read this poem. And you have that brief moment of, do I even eat the orange or is it too dry? Do oranges go bad? And then you're like, oh, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> but you're, then you're like, oh, it's probably just one wedge. And then you say that for every single wedge. And then you're like, well, I've eaten it. I get that. Yeah. Is this wedge going to have like sisters licking juices off each other's necks? We'll see. We'll see. So that was a poem and we read it. And that's what we did. We sure did. Thank you so much for listening. Bex, where would you like people to find you on the internet? Oh, so many places. On Twitter, I am at Bex Goose. That's B-E-X-G-O-O-S. There's no E at the end of my last name. And that's where I do podcast reviews and occasionally talk about food. And then I do have a podcast. It is called Not Again with an exclamation point. You'll know you found it when you see the two remotes covered in popcorn and fruity pebbles. And that's where my husband and I do this, but like to children's shows. So just overanalyzing the crap out of them. And we are at Not Again Pod on Twitter. I self-published a novel. It's a young adult urban fantasy supernatural romance called Hellbound. You can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Or if you want just to buy a PDF, it's a name your own price thing on Gumroad. You can go to bit.ly slash hellbound1 or bit.ly slash hellbound2 to find them on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's digital and in print and 
is probably the only good thing I've ever written. So yeah, like I'll stand by this one. I wouldn't tell you to read anything else I've written, but this one's pretty good. So yeah, it'd be cool if you checked it out. I don't know. Your high school poetry was also <laughs> pretty good. True. Yeah, th- th- that one poem was. You did not see the other ones that I attempted. <laughs> well, we really appreciated having you on and hearing your insights on this very weird text. <laughs> I love being here. And as for us, you can find us at Unsighted Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And we are on all of the podcatchers. So you know you're listening to us, but we would appreciate a five-star rating and review if you enjoyed this episode. And we hope to see you again in two weeks. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable. Don't listen to this with your parents. <laughs> <laughs>